Hello and welcome to the Food Climate Podcast. I'm Guillaume, your host, and each week, I'm fortunate to share with you stories from climate tech founders, investors, and corporations sharing their unique insights into this fast-moving industry. Eventually, like me, you will learn, discover, and get inspired by those unique men and women who are contributing to the fight against climate change, and I hope it will help you to take a step in this formidable movement. So before we start, I just want to share a few words about us as this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg of what we do at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech movement. Our mission is to accelerate capital deployment towards climate tech founders, allowing them to focus on scaling their solutions. How do we do that? Every day, we help founders access to resources and connections and gain the visibility they need to expand their growth. We do this in a number of ways with a membership platform, a Slack group with a growing number of founders, investors, and experts from around the world. And recently, we went one step further with a matching services to connect founders with top climate tech investors. Keep in mind that we are able to do all of this thanks to the support of our listeners and our members. Please like and subscribe share one episode with a friend, join a community, and if you haven't already done so, make a small donation to support our work. It really means the world to us. And now, enjoy the show! Hi everyone, in today's episode, we sat down with Shell Can. We lead Energy Impact Partners Frontier Fund dedicated to investing in revolutionary technologies to enable deep decarbonization. Energy Impact Partners is a 2.5 plus billion venture capital firm backed by a coalition of the world's largest energy and industrial companies. Shell's stories begins with a story itself. Shell's career began very early as a kid's entertainer and storyteller. Despite retiring from that career, storytelling continued to be a constant threat in his life and something that he seeks into founders. In university, he became enthralled by such an esoteric subject as utility regulation and decided it was a career for him. Then joined an early stage digital media startup and market intelligence where he led the GTM research operation. Once the company was bought out, he jumped ship towards something with more impact where he could leverage his own experience and joined Energy Impact Partners. Shell's expertise in the energy sector brought us to a discussion about hydrogen, its different sources, its different uses, and where the market is heading. We then dove into EIP and asked what is the story behind it, what are they doing differently than other venture firms, and what areas they are particularly excited about. In the second part of the show, Shares shares his advice for technical deep tech founders on how to best pitch their tech. He also shares one of his favorite climate reads about the energy industry. Shell, welcome to the show. Hi, Shell. Welcome to the Climate Podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I'm looking forward to this great opportunity to hear your story and get up to speed on what you guys are looking at with Energy Impact Partners Frontier Fund, which invests and supports companies developing revolutionary technologies to enable deep decarbonization 
And on top of that, I'm super excited as well as your podcast host yourself with this very popular climate tech podcast, Catalyst, which I recommend to everybody here. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Guillaume. I'm excited to be here. So before we start, as a tradition in the show, if you could uh, give us a 30-second introduction about Energy Impact Partners Frontiers Fund. Sure. Well, uh, Energy Impact Partners itself is close to eight years old now. We have about $3 billion under management across a number of different funds with different strategies. The thing that makes us sort of unique is our LP base. So a, a good chunk of our capital comes from a coalition of now over 60 large strategic investors in our funds. They come from a variety of different categories, big energy companies like Shell and Southern Company, uh, all over the energy value chain, built environment and real estate, mobility and transportation, heavy industry, technology, so a variety of different categories. And they all share a common interest in, in the energy transition and decarbonization. We work really closely with them. We're independent from them. So we're financial investors. Um, but we we have a big team that's dedicated to working with all of our strategic LPs, and we use that both to make us smarter as investors and probably more importantly, to deliver value to our portfolio companies once we invest. Um, I help lead what we call our Frontier Fund, which is a $485 million fund we launched a couple of years ago focused on the intersection of deep tech and climate. And we could talk more, I'm sure, about what that means. So let's start from the, the top. It's always the tradition in the show now is to really put the human back at the center of the interview. So if you could you know, share with the audience a bit more about your personal story and background, what are you passionate about? You know, What do you do besides uh, working and supporting and investing in, uh, in founders? I mean, what makes you feel inspired or like your best self? As I always ask, like, who shit? Well, um, I had a I had a slightly odd childhood, which I think is relevant to my professional life today, which is that my my father, before I was born, he was a college professor and he he quit. He hated it. Um and he became a children's entertainer. So he was a storyteller, juggler, magician for kids. Uh he intended to do that just briefly while he was figuring out what he was going to do with the rest of his life. And then long story short, he never got it what he would call a real job ever again. And that was all he did. So I started performing with him when I was three. Uh, I learned to juggle when I was six. I started my own little semi-professional juggling thing when I was seven or eight. Uh, I retired from all of that at 13, but I spent my childhood as a, as a kid's entertainer. Um, and particularly storytelling was sort of the core of, of what my dad did. And um, I don't know how much to really draw this through, but I, I focus a lot on narrative. I've My whole life. Um, I think of things in terms of how you tell the story around them. And that has impacted my whole career, which my whole career has not been focused on entertainment. It's been focused on what we now call climate tech and at various times called various other things. Uh, I've been doing it for, I guess, 16 years now, something like that. But uh, but the way that I think about everything that I am focused on is always around sort of telling the story of the thing that I'm thinking about to myself in my head or sometimes out loud. And it helps me make sense of the world. That also helps me sort of decide what I think is really important. So that's probably the most, I don't know, salient point about me personally. But thanks so much for, for sharing that. So maybe, I mean, you mentioned uh, storytelling is a big part of, uh, of you know, your, your roots in a way and, and, and your experience. But uh, 
we like to, to kind of zoom out and, and look at you know you know what you, you did prior to uh, become partner in 2018 uh, in the in the fund i mean if you have like maybe one or two pieces of uh, you know experience like this kind of gold nuggets that in a way gave your edge to be a, a partner in the in the fund today can you maybe define one or two or share that with us i mean the main thing that i spent most of my career on pre eip was uh starting in 2009 I joined what at that time was a very early stage startup, six people um, that was called Green Tech Media. And it was kind of early days. The idea was this business model innovation, which was combining a market intelligence firm with a digital media business, a B2B digital media business. And you put those two under one roof. They are separate uh, revenue lines, separate P&Ls, but they intersect with each other in a lot of different ways and benefit each other. So your digital media business is much more robust because you have access to all this proprietary market intelligence. Your market intelligence has its own in-house marketing arm via the digital media side. And, um, you know, we, we spent nine years or I guess eight years building that business up. We were venture backed. Um, we were eventually acquired by Wood McKenzie, which is this big Scotland based energy data and research firm. So I had my own startup journey and it also, I, I ran GTM research, which was the market analysis side of the house. And so there also, I got this very broad view of everything that was happening in, you know, focused on the energy transition at the time, um, spent a lot of time looking at different technologies, watching which ones succeeded, which ones failed, which companies succeeded, which ones failed, trying to predict all of those things, building up teams that were supposed to analyze all those technologies and markets and economics and so on. And so it gave me this, um, I think, a really broad view into what's happening in this market, which then became very handy when I jumped ship after the acquisition, uh, took a break, and then ended up joining EIP and and sort of landed on the investor side. Any um, aha moment or, you know, any like life experience in a way that you could define as such that in a way was really like this... Uh extra driver on top of this uh, natural like evolution that you have uh, to really like get involved into this more like climate tech uh, aspect or energy transition as you do today? I mean, I really got interested in it first in, in college and in undergrad. Um, I took two, I was a psychology major, so I was doing nothing to do with this sector at the time. It was toward the end of college. I had some electives I could take and I, I took two classes that sent me down this path. The first one was um, called Strategic Natural Resources. And it was it was the class in which we read Dan Jurgen's book, The Prize, which is sort of the history of the definitive history of energy. And for whatever reason, I just like was was enthralled by it and found it super interesting, started learning more and more about energy and about climate change. And then the second class, the one that really solidified it was this uh, this evening seminar. It was once a week. It was a three hour class. And it was on public utility regulation. It was taught by a former uh, executive at Southern California Edison. He would walk into class in the evening. He would he took a non-alcoholic beer. He would chug it, slam it on the table, and then talk about public utility regulation for three hours. And I think I was the only one or maybe one of very few people who loved it. And so I thought, you know, if I'm interested in something as esoteric as public utility regulation, there's probably something in this for me. And so I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and decided to give this area a try without having any real anticipation that it would be a, a, a lasting thing for me. And then fast forward, I guess now 17 years since then, and uh, and I haven't gotten bored by it yet, which is really my benchmark for whether I need to do something else in my life. 
Thank you so much for being personal with uh, with all of us here. So as we uh, we discussed uh, prior to this uh, interview, we wanted to kind of uh, cover one more like, uh, you know, industry specific uh, within the climate tech uh, ecosystem and decided to, you know, cover uh, together the hydrogen, uh, you know, as an alternative of, you know, source of energy and its potential to, to contribute to the, the fight against uh, climate change. So I like to look at it like in Two, with two different angles. So maybe on first one on the, the production side and on the other side, the, uh, the second part more on the utilization application uh, point of view. So if you start with the, the production side, um, I'd like you to kind of like reframe for everybody here uh, a little bit about the, your own you know, definition about the different categories of hydrogen. I mean, we hear about like the dark or black hydrogen, the blue one, the green one. So sometimes it can be a little bit uh, confusing for, for, for the audience here. Um, you know, if you could like, you know, enlighten us uh, on that, and maybe if you have like some, you know, data point that you could share on that uh, in terms of me quantity produced uh, for each of those uh, different types and many market penetration. So I think that the color spectrum that people use to describe different methods of hydrogen production is becoming less and less valuable over time for two reasons. One is that there are a lot of different ways to produce hydrogen. And so there are more colors emerging all the time. So I've heard, obviously, the ones that people talk about are like gray or black hydrogen, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen. There's turquoise hydrogen, there's red hydrogen, there's pink hydrogen. I've heard white and gold hydrogen referred to other things. It's too many. So the color Rainbow. spectrum is not, <laughs> yeah. And the other reason that I think it doesn't, I think it doesn't make a lot of sense anymore is that what we really care about, I think, at the end of the day, is not the method of hydrogen production, it is the emissions associated with that production. Like why would we switch from what people call gray hydrogen, which is produced using natural gas, to uh, green hydrogen, which is what people refer to with electrolysis produced with electricity and water. Why would we do that in the first place? The only reason to do that really is emissions, right? We're trying to get rid of greenhouse gas emissions. But the problem is that even within one of those categories, emissions are not fixed. If you're doing green hydrogen, for example, you're using electricity to split water. You're splitting H2O into hydrogen and oxygen. And the embedded emissions in that production is very much a function of how much emissions was created in the production of the electricity you use to do the reaction. And so not all green hydrogen is green, right? If you try to produce hydrogen using electrolysis from a very, very dirty grid, it's dirty hydrogen. Um, and so I just don't like the, the color spectrum as a way to talk about it. I think the right way to talk about it, albeit it's a little bit more wonky and harder to, to do in shorthand, is actually talking about the life cycle emissions of any given production of hydrogen. Because there are, again, lots of ways to produce hydrogen. Uh, it, it is abundant in our, in our world. And so you can use biomass to produce hydrogen. You can use water. You can use natural gas. Uh, they're, they're, you know, multiple categories and more emerging all the time because the hydrogen market is is evolving quickly. Mm -hmm. What I think matters ultimately are, are just two things really, or three, I guess. One is, like I said, the embedded emissions associated with that production, which is a function both of the input, the technology you're using and how you do it. Like I said, if you're doing electrolysis, the, the grid matters. Second thing that matters is scalability. So the, even the scale of the hydrogen market today is quite large, it's like $70 billion a year or something like that. Um, the What we're going to do with it 
if we are successful in using hydrogen to displace, for example, natural gas and things like steelmaking or other heavy industry, if we're going to use hydrogen or hydrogen derivatives to power ships or planes, those need to scale up much, much, much larger. And so the only things that are really interesting, I think, from a global perspective are the ways to produce hydrogen that that can scale to orders of magnitude bigger than any of it is today, right? So emissions, scalability, and then finally, and probably most importantly, is going to be cost. Not necessarily the cost today, but the long-term cost of any given method of hydrogen production. And this is where I think green hydrogen, or what people call green hydrogen, electrolysis basically, has a really interesting roadmap ahead of it, where it is pretty expensive today. But if you believe that the technology has the potential to come down a learning curve that we've seen in other sectors, like in solar PV and in lithium ion batteries and so on, then there is a trajectory that I think is realistic to picture where electrolysis driven hydrogen becomes uh, cost comparative, if not cheaper than natural gas SMR driven hydrogen within a you know reasonable period of time. So those are the three factors that I think matter. And within that, then there are, again, a bunch of different ways to make hydrogen. We should be pursuing all of them. So maybe we can double click a little bit on the way to produce hydrogen that in a way uh, meet at the intersection of what you mentioned, those three components, emission, scalability, and uh, cost efficiency, uh, if I recall well, the, the third one. So would you have like maybe one or two, you know, example of like technologies that is, you know, already like maybe going out of the lab or are we really like, uh, I mean, what type of companies do you guess? I mean, you're the forefront uh, and I'm sure you see a lot of like companies without like maybe, you know, uh, unveiling too much and naming anyone. Uh, give us a little bit of a hint. What, what What's cooking in the, in the lab and what maybe are like the... The, the potential and sometimes also the weaknesses that you guys see when you look at uh, the whole spectrum together. So, I mean, I should note that like the vast, vast majority, nearly all of the hydrogen produced today is produced by steam methane reforming. So when you said like shares of the market, the share of the market today is steam methane reforming. That's it. Um, that's how we make hydrogen. The sort of next easiest step from there is what people call blue hydrogen, which is to keep doing steam methane reforming and capture the CO2. The two challenges with that, well, there are a few challenges with that. One is um, you don't necessarily get full CO2 capture. The second is that you still have the upstream emissions associated with the methane, right? The, you know, there there's methane leakage along the supply chain that's, that's hard to avoid entirely. Uh, and the third is you have to do something with the CO2, which is true for any carbon capture solution. So it's inherently more expensive than just producing it via SMR, but it is probably the lowest lift technologically. The other thing you could do with natural gas uh, is rather than using SMR to produce it, you could do what's called turquoise hydrogen or methane pyrolysis, which is splitting that natural gas, basically. Natural gas is CH4. So you split out the carbon and the hydrogen. The carbon then, depending on how you do it, can be a valuable product. So for example, there's companies like Monolith, which is doing methane pyrolysis, producing a form of solid carbon that actually has real valuable uses, um, predominantly in tire making. So in our tires on our vehicles, we use a bunch of solid carbon and they're selling it. So they're making a bunch of money off of selling the carbon that buys down the cost of the hydrogen that they produce. 
So that's an interesting pathway. They still have to deal with the upstream emissions associated with the with the natural gas. Um, yeah, I think where most of the investment attention is going right now is into electrolysis, which people call green hydrogen. And there, there are a bunch of subcategories of different technologies within electrolysis. There's alkaline, there's PEM, there's AEM, there's other more esoteric stuff. You know, again, I think the question is going to be what, uh, which of those technologies can scale the largest and which ones have the, um, the fastest trajectory, cost down trajectory. We're investors in a company called Electric Hydrogen, which is a an electrolysis technology company that has what I think is the the right approach to the market. They're building um, extremely large electrolyzers. So, you know, we could talk, I think we're going to talk more about the end uses for hydrogen. This is very specifically going after the large scale end uses for hydrogen, not the small scale ones. And if you do that, then you can design systems that are much bigger and potentially much lower cost from a, a unit production standpoint. Um, but electrolysis in general is where most of the attention is going. Then there's a few other categories that I think are interesting, potential for low cost, harder to scale quite as large. So the, all the biomass approaches are a good example of this, where you know you can get carbon negative hydrogen potentially in some situations. And the costs, depending on how you value that carbon negativity, can be good. But um, you're always limited by biomass feedstock, which is, which is a challenge because you're competing for that feedstock against people who want to use it for sustainable aviation fuel and people who want to use it for um for synthetic biology purposes to produce chemicals like whatever it might be so uh so that one's interesting it's just i think it's never going to be the predominant way we produce hydrogen and then there are some others that are still a little bit more in stealth that we find interesting as well so it's a big it's a big universe these days yeah, then definitely. And thank you so much for already uh, unveiling a little bit. I I'd like just to, uh, b before we go on the utilization side, I mean, like, can you give us like a, a magnitude in terms of like uh, cost uh, of production? I mean, the, the cost of the end product, the hydrogen, I mean, like it's per kilo, per ton, per liters. Uh, I don't know exactly how do you calculate that uh, that cost, but where we are today and where do you think those companies can bring it down to uh, something similar to avoid this green premium effect and maybe uh, cheaper than uh, the dark or like, uh, you know, uh, fossil fuel based uh, hydrogen in itself. Yeah, I mean, so going price of hydrogen, I, I should say these are probably, these are US prices, um, probably higher in Europe, but, you know, going price of sort of steam methane reforming based hydrogen today is in the sort of $1.50 to meet let's say $1.50 a kilogram. It, it scales up and down with the cost of natural gas because that's the primary input. But so that's your target for price parity for any new method of production. Um, you know, I think prices tend to scale up and down with natural gas, which is highly volatile. So if you have um, price security via a long-term contract for renewables or something like that, you know, you could probably get away with $2. So figure $2 per kilogram is sort of your target, at least for the US, for the type of uh, production I think you need to be at to really start to scale the market up substantially. Historically, green hydrogen production costs are well above that. Um, you know, they can be six, seven, eight, ten dollars $10 a kilogram, but they're fast falling. Um, and I think it's one of these markets where you're going to blink and prices are going to be faller, sorry, smaller than you think they are. So going back now into maybe the, the utilization side, if you could like brush for the audience a little bit, like what are the, uh, and, and specific more like in terms of like alternative of uh, energy sources, 
uh, more than just the you know the, the all the other applications that you were mentioning before. Uh, if you could tell us, like, where do you see that? Uh, I mean, the the roadmap and the path as the fastest for now. I mean, we speak about like you know, uh, aviation industry uh, trying to put like hydrogen there. Is that something realistic? Are we way further uh, down the line? Um, so, if you could tell us a little bit more about like you know those applications where today, in fact, if on the production side we uh, we're able to go uh, as low as the $1.52 uh, per kilo. Uh, it will have like a, a real impact and, and quite fast in a way for the on the roadmap. So I think you start with the existing use cases of hydrogen. Like I said, there is an existing market for hydrogen that's pretty big. And it is predominantly in the production of ammonia for fertilizer. Um, that is a huge market already today. So, you know, one for one, if you can replace the cost, uh, then you can replace all that. And that's one and a half percent of global emissions just on its own. So that's big. Um, the other sort of second largest market today for hydrogen is, is the production of petrochemicals, which is also fairly large. The next set of markets are the ones that are not yet using hydrogen um, predominantly, but but could and where it looks pretty attractive. I would say your big prizes there are going to be things like steelmaking, um, which uses an enormous amount of energy, predominantly coal today, huge source of emissions, like 8% of global emissions. Uh, and where hydrogen, there's a lot of, of testing of hydrogen for portions of steel making today. Other big heavy industrial categories um, can use it as well. But then the other one is sort of in the, the heavy duty transportation world. I would say particularly for maritime, there's a there's become a big focus around hydrogen um, derivatives for uh, for maritime applications, either using ammonia itself or methanol, both of which have hydrogen in them, um, to to power ships. There's also the possibility of of using hydrogen derivatives for aviation, either hydrogen itself or you know maybe more likely e-fuels, which are a combination of CO2 and hydrogen. Um, so those are each of them enormous categories on their own. Uh, and then you get into things that I think are sort of Oh, not to mention the power sector, by the way, using hydrogen as long duration storage on the grid, um, using hydrogen and it to be co-fired in natural gas generators. Um, so all, all of those are big, heavy industrial and, you know, individually enormous markets. Then people talk about using hydrogen in smaller scale use cases that I find less interesting and I think are less likely to be big. Um, things like passenger vehicles, things like heating, home heating, um, these are areas that I think hydrogen is getting probably more attention than it should because there are good viable alternatives, largely direct electrification that just make more sense. I feel like, um, I mean, compare like on one side, you know, like this all like um, electric port uh, and I'm more focusing on the, the transportation industry here, but like, uh, you know, all the EVs uh, versus hydrogen, like where do, you, do they stand? Like, do you think there is like, a viable alternative there with the hydrogen or in certain use case it would make sense or uh, no in fact we should uh, keep hydrogen for all the other uh, sectors that you uh, that you mentioned and use case uh, more than the you know uh, transportation individual transportation or eventually like uh, uh, those uh, long haul uh, truck transportation i think trucking is is the category that is right on the borderline for me Anything smaller than like class eight trucks, I don't really see a good use case for hydrogen. Um, anything larger, I definitely do. And this one's right on the border for me, where I think 
from what I've seen, I th and I because it's right on the border, I don't have a, as strong an opinion here as I do in some of these other categories. I think there is a clear case that you can electrify directly electrify a good portion of of heavy duty trucking. Um, but there are some limitations there to do with sort of the duty cycle of some of these vehicles, the range that you can get with EVs, the weight of the battery, and so on. And so right now, it seems like it's a pretty even fight between direct electrification and hydrogen. I think I would lean toward direct electrification for trucks, ultimately winning out. Um, but like I said, it's not my strongest opinion. Okay, thank you. I, I like to uh, zoom out a little bit more, like in the in the tailwind, uh, in terms of like um, you know um, regulation, and I would say like uh, uh, more like the the uh, ecosystem in itself. Like, I mean, would you have like you know maybe some some thought about like you know the US advantage and, and weaknesses in regard of you know more like the green hydrogen innovation and production versus uh, you know China and and maybe Europe? Do you see like a Major difference in terms of uh, innovation, uh, innovation stimulation, I would say. I would say there's a lot of innovation, technology innovation going on in, in both the US and Europe. China has already started doing with electrolysis what China does, which is picking a sort of technology that may not be the best on paper or in theory, but is, is manufacturable and then starting to scale it up and drive down costs. So China is going to be a formidable player in in electrolysis production there's no question about that um the advantages that uh the advantages that that hydrogen that i'm sorry the advantages that the us and europe have are on the demand side um you know the us passed the inflation reduction act which has these like really enormous subsidies for hydrogen europe is poised to to pass its own version so the markets for hydrogen are clearly going to emerge quickly in the US and in Europe. The question is, can the US and Europe compete on production um, or is it going to end up looking a lot more like what his solar, for example, historically has looked like, which is demand in the US and Europe, production in China? So to close this uh, this section, uh, I'd like just to get your, uh, your last uh, you know few thoughts on like, I mean, as you mentioned, and based on what I understand here, we're kind of like at the, you know, uh, I would say like starting line uh, for, for, for the run. Uh, do you see like any roadblock uh, that uh, could or that are currently uh, slowing down, I would say, the, the growth and the explosion of this, uh, this type of market in uh, maybe in, at least in the US and maybe in Europe? Uh, is it maybe a, a lack of, uh, you know, there's, there's like maybe some regulation missings? Uh, or if you're at uh, in the Congress, uh, which one would you uh, would you like to be to be passed to really accelerate uh, this uh, this market and this growth and really the deployment at uh, at full scale? Because I'd say two things on hydrogen specifically. Um, you know, in the U.S. and Europe, both we're just kind of waiting for final regulations to come out. So we kind of know the contours of what the pol supportive policies are going to be, and they're good. Uh, now we need to know the details, and until we know the details the market can't really move forward all that quickly. And then second, I think what is going to end up being the bigger bottleneck is particularly for, for electrolysis, uh, it's not going to be the hydrogen, it's going to be the renewable electricity and interconnecting it. That is going to be the problem. Um, you know, The delays in project development are going to be, be caused by the fact that you want to have an agreement to purchase power from a specific renewable energy project, uh, ideally even a new one, but getting the, the interconnect 
um, agreement for for that project is going to be the long pole in the tent, so to speak. And that's a problem that needs to be solved totally separately. Any uh, any other question that uh, I should have asked you for this uh, first part uh, to really cover the whole uh, hydrogen landscape, or you feel like uh, now the audience have a, a clear view on what's happening and uh, where to go next? No, I think you know. I think two things are both true about hydrogen. It is both overhyped and it is going to be a huge component of the global decarbonization story and of the energy sector. Like people like to say, people either like to say it's like the next, you know, the next biggest thing in the world, or they like to say it's overhyped and we talk about it too much. And I think both of those things can kind of be true at the same time. Thank you so much. So let's go into the, the specific of uh, of the Frontier Fund at uh, Energy Impact Partners. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about the the, the, the story behind it and the, the genesis of it? I mean, what was the initial gap that uh, you guys saw to that led to the, the current thesis behind it? I'm sorry, you cut out for one second. Could you just repeat that? Yeah, so I, I was just like wanted to get a little bit your your insight of the of the story, uh the genesis of like the the frontier front. I mean, what was the initial gap that you guys, uh, uh, you know, saw uh, that led to the, the thesis of the of the fund? Well, the original, so EIP has been around longer than the frontier fund, right? And um, our flagship fund, when we first launched the first flagship fund, um, you know, a big part of the story there was that we had kind of looked at and learned a lot of lessons from the the boom and bust of clean tech one dot And one of those big lessons was. You need to be really careful about investing in highly capital intensive, hard tech businesses, particularly where there's technology risk remaining. Um, and so we we decided we wouldn't do that in our first fund. Um, and it was a successful fund. We went on to launch a second of those that were were in the later stages of investing now. But as time was going on, we were we were seeing and passing on a lot of opportunities that we really started to get excited about that were exactly that kind of thing. Um that were hard tech, that were high technology risk, or at least remaining technology risk, um, but that we were getting convinced would be good investment opportunities nonetheless, both because we thought we had unique ability to, to vet them and potentially to support them if we invested, but also because what we sort of came to, to realize was, you know, if you are building something that is deep tech, that is gonna be capital intensive, that is gonna take a while to reach maturity, um, it, it is harder, right. And it will take more money and the bar is set higher. But if you were doing that with a big enough market opportunity and you have a clear enough story around and path of how you're going to get there, then the upside for you might be even larger. So, you know, if you, if you think about, um, you know, the concept of power law in, in venture capital, which is, you know, in traditional venture, venture universe, right. Um, you know, you, you make a portfolio of investments, a very small number of them represent an outsized majority of your returns. And that that's the power law. It's, it's, I think if you take a very, a power law like approach, particularly to the deep tech world, um, and you think really hard about that, you're really consistent with it, then there's enormous opportunity. At the same time, we were also seeing that sort of deep decarbonization being the sort of not, not incremental decarbonization, but the type of innovations that are going to have staying power for decades and get us significantly on the path toward net zero, um, 
we just think there's going to be macro tailwinds supporting those technologies that that last you know through multiple cycles macroeconomic cycles political cycles and so on so if you believe that the opportunity is big enough uh, and you can appropriately assess the risk associated with something, then it actually can be a really smart investment strategy to get involved in those deep tech companies early and then help them bring their products to market. So with that, all of those kind of revelations, we decided a few years ago that actually we should just have a, a dedicated investment strategy um, specifically focused on doing that exactly. And that became what the Frontier Fund is now, which is you know, our, our mandate is deep tech plus climate. So the two components of that are equally important. One is we're investing in revolutionary technologies. We're not looking for incremental innovation. We are looking for fundamental technology advances in, in key areas. Um, and the second is climate. These have to have a, a significant, a large climate impact at scale, not just because that's the mandate we've set out for ourselves in the fund, but also because we believe that is what is going to drive the, the macroeconomic tailwinds that these companies will benefit from so just a good question i mean like it definitely like uh, all the funds are like you know uh claiming that they are bringing the the best for the the founders that they invest in so what you guys are doing for the the founders that you invest in how do you support them uh and uh what are the the challenges that you see at the early stage especially on the on the deep tech side uh that are specific to to them and that you guys try to address uh in terms of like uh, you know being the, the companion at the early stage uh, to go to the the, the further stage later on I mean, a lot of it has to do with sort of technology scale up. Typically, what you're seeing is companies that um, you know have some kind of a prototype at very small scale or at lab scale, and then need to sort of get from that to full commercial scale. And there's always questions along the way there as to what the stages of scale up should be, uh, how to capitalize them, how to capitalize the company along the way, when to start focusing on commercial as opposed to just technology, that sort of path from we have a thing that works in a beaker or whatever it might be to we have a full-scale commercial thing. That's the journey that basically every one of our companies in our portfolio is going on. And we've we've started to develop a, a really well-honed set of processes to help them think through all those challenges. I like to understand, and you mentioned that uh, a little bit at the, at the beginning, like you, your LP-based are in a way uh, part of this uh, carbonization economy, uh, if I could uh, say, and you mentioned some of the uh, some of them, uh, oil producers and stuff like that. How is the the, the relationship? Uh, you know, on one side, uh, you're not trying to clean the mess, if I could I, I could say. Uh, on the other side, they support you to do that. Uh, sometimes, do you guys feel like uh, tension and friction, or like different uh, uh, point of view, and you try to to find the, the best way to you know, push forward uh, this uh, climate uh, component that uh, that you uh, all have in mind as a, as an all stars. Is the question sort of like, do we do we feel tension sometimes with our LPs around? Yeah, how do you deal with this like different approach? I mean, there are, in a way, uh, issues from the uh, this economy that is uh, relying and hopefully, I mean, uh, based on, and I'm not the only one to say that, but uh, based on what we hear that when you are in business, you want to, you tend to, to keep doing as business as usual, even seeing the threat in front of you as long as you can. Uh, and on the other side, developing like alternative as you guys are doing. So I guess sometimes it might create some friction. So would 
interesting for you know others like uh, groups or investors working with this kind of organization how do you uh, in a way do conflict management or conflict of interest management uh, in these kind of things if we can if i may ask yeah and it's not so much an issue for us because i think that the um those who have invested in eip are self selected to be the ones who are invested in the transition right like they wouldn't they wouldn't be involved with us if they weren't um and also you know we found generally that most of these large strategics they've made their own net zero commitments particularly over the past couple of years they you know have enough stakeholders who care about those commitments that they need to take them seriously and they're mostly trying to figure out how to do it um you know they they see things that they can do today but they're not going to get them all the way there and so they're really you know hungry for innovation that can help them solve problems that they're going to face over the next decade or two and um and as a result you know the types of things that we focus on these sort of like big fundamental innovations to drive toward net zero they're in love with generally um so we we haven't faced a lot of tension around it because they're they're just really hungry for solutions So speaking about the uh, innovation i mean i always ask to uh, the different funds and investors that i speak with you know clearly you have your initial uh, thesis uh, and then uh, as many of you guys are doing is like those deep dive and starting to get more excited about like one or two uh, subsectors or, or subcategories in the uh, in the ecosystem uh, what is for you like which one are like the sectors that are the most promising for you today uh, in terms of what i call the impact cash return or icr um, you know any underdogs or subsectors area that you're especially excited about that you would like to share I would say a couple areas that um I've been spending a lot of time in recently one um sort of the metals and minerals world I mean I think if you think at the high level around decarbonization what a lot of that and particularly electrification is it, what a lot of that is going to be is a transition from the extraction of fossil fuels to the extraction of minerals um and that carries with it a lot of what are going to become bottlenecks and challenges along the way you know you see stuff like the price of lithium running up and cobalt and nickel and copper and rare earths and all these other categories and then the refining of all those minerals the recycling of them like there's just a lot that's going to that's going to come out of that transition so we've been spending a lot of time um looking at that kind of broad category and i'd say another one for me is looking at um non co2 greenhouse gases and how to mitigate them more i think there's been a big focus on co2 and less on for example methane and nitrous oxide which are the, the two next largest behind co2 totally different set of sources uh different set of solutions you know huge problem don't get enough attention for a variety of reasons and so for both of them uh i think there's a lot of opportunity there and i like to take the the the, the counter side of it like uh, i mean which was the the one that you're like absolutely not excited anymore about or you find maybe it's there's too much hype around it or maybe it's a, more like a greenwashing thing so like subcategories like any examples of like where you think that uh, not worth uh, you know spending money on or time um i don't think this is greenwashing at all and i don't know that it's not worth spending time on but i'll tell you a category that i'm i'm sort of concerned about at the moment which is carbon removal um i think that there's no question as to the need we need to do it um there is a question as to the market 
and how the market will emerge, who the buyers will be, who the customers are, and how that scales from the you know very small volumes today to the volumes that we will need from a from a global emissions standpoint. There's been a big focus on it of late in startup circles, and as a result, there are hundreds of carbon removal companies that have startups that have emerged. And I worry that there is there's going to be a bit of a shakeout there. I think because the the market is growing, but I don't know that it's growing quite the demand side. I don't know that it's growing quite fast enough to support the wave of supply that you know if these companies all succeed will be emerging in sort of the three to five year time frame. So that's a category that I'm I'm really focused on um, being very selective there. Not to say we wouldn't invest there at all, we would, um, but we need to be very selective because I, I worry about what the sort of supply demand picture is going to look like there in in a couple of years. Speaking about the impact, uh, you mentioned that's something uh, that matters a lot uh, for you guys. Uh, can you share a little bit more, like? Uh, you know, uh, how do you measure this uh, this impact in itself? Do you have like, any like specific process framework? Uh, do you rely on you know team of scientists to validate uh, the tech and the investment that you uh, that you see to assess that, or is it something that as it's too early stage, maybe it's something that you refine along the along the step? So we do have a technology diligence team. Their focus is not as much on impact measurement as it is on technology measurement and technology diligence. Um, on the impact side, we do a lot there too, actually. We have a we have an ESG team inside uh, EIP who does all, you know, does emissions uh, measurement and forecasting and analysis across our entire portfolio, across the entire company, not just, not just the Frontier Fund. Um, we publish an annual impact report that's like 80 pages and has a lot of detail both on our own impact and our portfolio company's impact. We take that all pretty seriously at EIP. The one thing we don't do um, is set a specific impact threshold, like greenhouse gas emissions threshold for companies for us to invest in. The reason we don't do that is that, you know, most of the companies we're investing in, their pre-revenue, they haven't actually produced all that much yet. You know, the impact theoretically is, um, is a modeling exercise and it, it's a function of how you, Put the inputs in the model basically and so we try not to do too many gymnastics just to come to a very specific number but but we're very clear on the scale of the impact that we need to see in this fund which is which is going to be large on a global scale so what's next for the the frontier fund what's next for you guys uh well we're we're sort of in the middle of it now we we launched the fund about two years ago we've invested in um 12 companies so far with a couple more under term sheet you know, out of what will ultimately be around a 30 company portfolio. So we're about halfway done. Um, so we've got a couple more years of investing out of this fund to go and lots more exciting companies to work with. And, uh, and you know, we want to build a portfolio that ultimately is representative of a full global decarbonization pathway. So we've covered a bunch of categories, but there are many more still to be covered. So that's a tradition the, on the show. Prior, we go to uh, my secret section. I'd like to get a little bit your uh, personal opinion on the on the climate crisis. I mean, what would you say to to the people who feel, uh, you know, excessively demoralized uh, by seeing all of those uh, already visible consequences of climate change? I mean, as I always ask, like, are we doomed? I don't know. I I just think, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's not great. Um, I don't think we're doomed, right? Like the the worst versions of the modeling are, are, are not the trajectory that we are on. Um, but that's that I also just think it's, it's not productive to be defeatist about it. 
we are where we are. And all we can do is focus as much attention and effort and resources as we can on, on solving the problem. And so I've always been focused on doing that and not on dwelling on, on how bad it is. So how can the community of uh, investors, founders, experts listening to the show can uh, help you today? Reach out if you got great ideas. You know, we're we're actively investing in the space. We're looking for, um, you know, revolutionary technologies with killer founding teams that can do something really big. Uh, we're, we're willing to take a fair amount of risk, but it needs the opportunity and the sort of pathway needs to be clear. Any question I should have uh, asked you for this first part of the show that I did not have? I don't think so. We covered a lot of ground. Thank you so much, uh, Shell, for your uh, time, uh, your honesty, your uh, wisdom, and incredible insight on the uh, on the industry. Super excited to see uh, so many brilliant people like you putting so much time and uh, effort and uh, to support founders to go to the next step and uh, and uh, hopefully eventually like uh, you know uh, for a better world. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks again for joining us on the Tech for Climate podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. Stay tuned next week for more Climate Tech Insights. In the meantime, head on over to our webpage at startupbasecamp.org where we have lots more insights and resources for anyone wanting to get involved in climate tech. If you find our resources useful, please consider donating to support our small self-funded team. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. And see you next time.